Good morning. Thank you for joining us here in worship today. I'm so glad that you are here to praise our Lord and also hear from His Word. And I'm grateful for those of you who are watching online as well. And the fact that you're here in a church or that you're watching uh, tells me something about you. So I'm going to make an assumption right now, and, and maybe it's mistaken, but I'm going to assume that if you're here in this building or you're watching, you believe that God loves you. Or at the very least, you're open to the belief that there is a God and that this God loves you. So that's the assumption I'm going to operate under. You believe God loves you or you're open to the idea. Maybe it sounds nice. It would be nice if there was a God who loved me. But there's a problem when you think about that. And the problem is you may hold that belief, but you look at your life and your life often has periods of struggle and periods of difficulty, hardship, and suffering. And if you're not going through that right now, then you have in the past and you will probably again soon in the future. And those are two very difficult things to put together in our minds. God loves me, but my life is often hard. And we sometimes struggle with how those fit together. It may leave us wondering, what is God's purpose in this suffering, this hardship I experience? Why do I go through it? What in the world is God doing if it's true that God loves me? And we're actually going to talk about the answer to that in our passage today in Psalm 119. This is the chapter we're studying this summer. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm in the Bible. It's longer than many other books in Scripture. It's a love song, a hymn of praise to God's law and His Word. The psalm is actually a very long, carefully structured acrostic poem where you take each letter of the alphabet and you have a line that starts with it. But the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, so it wasn't in English, it's not the letters we have, but instead the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each eight lines are start with one letter and then it changes to another. So where in verses 65 through 80, the Hebrew letters are tet and yod here. Last week, we talked about how God's word is a comfort to us. When we're going through those hard times, when we're suffering, when it feels like the world is against us, when we feel alone, we can know God. And we're called to obey him and to praise him along with all of his people. And this passage is going to talk more about what we do in hardship, but this time it's going to focus more on that why. Why are we suffering and struggling and how do we respond to it? What do we say? What do we do? What we're going to discover is that if we know God, if we have a relationship with him, if we know him through his son, Jesus Christ, then the suffering he brings into our lives is actually a discipline. And it's a discipline that's good for us because it reveals his love for us and it makes us like him. And so we're called to respond to that by asking God for even more growth and by seeking to encourage other believers. But to do that, we have a desperate need for God's mercy. So that's where we're going. Again, we're looking at verses 65 through 80, Psalm 119, 65 through 80. I'd encourage you to turn there. You can use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. I think it's on page 608, 608. Or you can pull up your own Bible, Bible app. We'll also put it up on the screen. We're going to read the whole passage, but then as we talk about it, we're going to kind of jump around because since it's a poem, sometimes something starts at one place and it picks up 
somewhere else. But for now, if you're there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. This is Psalm 119, verses 65 through 80. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 65, our author, speaking to God, says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The next section begins in verse 73. He says, God, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 76 says, let your steadfast love comfort me according to the promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are often challenging and difficult. And in those moments, it's difficult to know what is happening, what you're doing, and where your love and presence is. But God, when we're in those moments of of discipline, of affliction, I pray that you would teach us how good it is. Yes, it doesn't feel good. It's hard. It's difficult. We can, we can mourn, express our, our frustration to you, but God, you are good in it because you are showing your love for us and you have a good purpose. You are making us like you. So teach us, Lord, to respond to these difficult moments by seeking even more growth, that we may look more and more like you and also teaching us to encourage others with what you are doing in our lives. God, we know that we can't do this on our own. We need you, and we need your mercy, your love, your grace. Please give that to us as you are so faithful to do through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray we may see his love and mercy clearly in this passage, that he may increase in our affection and in our praise. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
When we look at these sections of Scripture, we have these, these nice eight-verse sections, and so we're going to focus on each one. And the first one really talks about this idea of God's discipline, trial, affliction, even suffering that we experience. And the point it's driving home is that God brings discipline into our lives, and that is good. And that is good. If you have the note sheet that was out in the lobby, that's that first blank you have there. And uh, before I continue, let me just note that we made some changes to that, that handout. Uh, Pastor Tom got a lot of really good feedback about having the scripture references there, so we've included that under each point. I've also taken the liberty of putting most of the quotes I'll reference on the back of that sheet. So I know some of you told me that you try to write them down, but they're just too long sometimes. Well, there you are right there. So we do listen, and so hopefully having those verses and those quotes are a benefit to you. But the emphasis in this passage is on God's goodness and his goodness in our moments of affliction when he brings this discipline. In fact, we can't really see it in English, but in Hebrew, this section of verses, these eight verses, the word good shows up six times. In fact, in Hebrew, five of those verses begin with the word good. The emphasis is on God's goodness. And the psalmist writing this, he accepts God's discipline, the fact that God brings correction, difficult experiences into his life because he knows it serves God's purposes. But of course, the question for us is why? Why does God do this? Why does he bring this discipline? And the passage, I think, brings out two reasons why he does this. The first reason is because God's discipline reveals his love for us. It reveals his love for us. If you recall, if you've been here a little bit, we just finished going through the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, we actually talked a little bit about this, God's discipline that he can bring into our lives. We read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses like this. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The author's saying it's a good thing he brings this correction. He's not talking about abuse. He's talking about necessary correction in his life. And we see the beginning in our same thing in our passage. Verse 65 talks about this. The psalmist is suffering, but he still says to God, you have dealt well with your servant. You've treated me well. You have done good things in my life. God, you've answered my plea to do good to me. And then he says in verse 68 about God's character, he says, God, you are good and you only do good. He sees that God is essentially good. Goodness is an innate part of his character. Pastor Charles Spurgeon describes it this way. He says, God has a monopoly of goodness, for there is none good but one. That is God. He is a monopoly of goodness. We want to know what goodness is. We look at our Lord. He never changes. He is always good. And he's good to us. It's out of his love that he brings every blessing we experience, whether it's physical blessings, whether it's spiritual blessings of knowing him. Everything we have that's good ultimately comes from him. Another psalm expresses it this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And our passage makes clear that that goodness, that love 
is often expressed to us through God's discipline. It's an expression of His goodness and love. We see this later in verse 75. I know it's in the next section, but it's really talking about the same point. He says, God, I know, O Lord, that your rules, your judgments are righteous, that God is always right, true, and fair, and that it's in his faithfulness that he afflicts or disciplines us. It's because of his faithful love that he brings these challenging situations. This is a common expression in the psalm. Psalm 33 talks about it. It says, the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. And I know that this is a very hard concept to wrap our heads around because when we're in those moments of trial, of difficulty, of suffering, it feels like God has abandoned us, that he is far from us. But if we know him and have a relationship with him, those moments of hardship are actually when he is being most faithful to us. This is what the psalmist has learned. He's surrendering to God's judgments, that God is always just and faithful to his people. And he brings this discipline because we need it. As we see in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says about God, he disciplines us for our good. And we'll talk in a second about what his good purpose is, but we see that it's for our good. It's out of God's love. And when God's servants, when God's people understand this, it changes their perspective of what is happening to them. As I was preparing for this message, I came across the story of a missionary named Alan Gardner. And he was on a boat. He was sailing to the mission field he was going to serve in. And as he was going, the, there was a shipwreck. And so the boat sunk, and he and a few others made it to a shore of a deserted area. And they were there waiting and waiting for rescue, but rescue never came, and they all died of starvation. And when rescuers finally arrived and found their bodies, they found next to Alan Gardner a diary. And the very last entry he wrote in this diary, as he's starving to death, was this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. That was his thought in that moment. How could he possibly think that? He's starving, but he knew that his suffering fit within God's purpose for his life and within God's loving care for him. The Puritan John Owen put it this way, all our troubles, persecutions, and afflictions, the word our passage uses, all of them, he says, are divine chastisements and reproofs whereby God evidences to us our adoption. And you may get hung up in how he's phrasing that, but the simple point he's saying is if we're going through hardship and we know God, then those hardships are just proof that he has adopted us and that he loves us. In other words, they're how we know that we are God's children, how we know that God loves us. If you know God through Jesus Christ, then your trial, your suffering, they are gifts from a gracious Father. And I know, I know it really, really, really doesn't feel like that in the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely but your good father always does what is good. And you may wonder, well, how can that possibly be good? Why does he do this, pastor? Well, that's what the rest of this section talks about. These trials, these sufferings, the affliction reveal his love and goodness to us, and the purpose they serve is that they make us like him. They make us like him, like God. 
That's the kind of the heartbeat we see of this psalmist throughout this passage. He wants to grow closer to God. He desperately wants it. You can even just look at the words here. This may not be on the screen, but look here. At the beginning of verse 66, he says, teach me, God, good judgment and knowledge. The end of verse 68, he says, teach me your statutes. Verse 66 is a request. He wants knowledge. He wants good judgment. He wants discernment so that he can believe and trust in God's commandments. He's desperate for it. But he also knows the way God responded to that request was by bringing discipline and suffering into his life. You can see the two verses here. His request is, God, teach me good judgment and knowledge. And how did God answer? He says in 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I went astray, I wandered, but now he's been afflicted and disciplined and he keeps God's word. And he's clear about why this happened to him. He's saying it was his decision to sin. He didn't blame others. He chose to wander from God. And the same is true for each of us. We're like sheep that wander astray, chase our own desires and pleasures, and we need God's correction to bring us back. And he's gracious to do that so that we keep, obey, follow his word. He disciplines us through these trials so that we grow closer to him. The New Testament brings this up a whole lot. One place in particular is Peter talks about it. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. They're going through trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, that faith that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, what's that faith going to do? It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That faith, that trial, some good result comes. Uh, Another Puritan named William Secker, he put it this way, very simply. He said, sin, when we're sinning, that's very pleasant, but it's ultimately unprofitable. Sorrow, suffering is profitable. It has a good result, but it's also unpleasant as we're going through it. Yes, life is hard. Yes, Trials are difficult. Yes, hardship is rough, but it has a profitable, good result. In this, we're really talking about a word we sometimes use in church is sanctification. And that just means we're growing more and more to look like Jesus Christ. Our life looks like him. Our character looks like him. Our thoughts are his thoughts. And the way God does that work in us is by bringing these hard times. And this is what we saw when we read through Hebrews just a a few weeks ago. Hebrews 12 talks about it. It says, God, he disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. And the author acknowledges, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is bringing holiness. He's making us look like him. We don't see it right away. It's later it comes through it, but the fruit is righteousness. We have God's righteous and good character. This is what the psalmist had experienced, but it's in contrast to the people around him who do not 
no God. Look at what he says in verses 69 and 70. He says, these insolents smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. They are the insolent, the proud, the arrogant who smear him with lies. Maybe they look at his life and say, he doesn't really follow God's word when he actually does. And that's what's hard with looking at somebody else and knowing what's going on with them. Yes, God brings this discipline correction when we sin, but it's also work he brings in our lives to mold and shape us like him, even if there's not a particular way that we're, we've strayed from him in that moment. And so from a distance, critical people may look at what God is doing and they say, oh, God's judging, punishing you, but he actually may be shaping and molding us. He may be leading his child. As the author says, they're criticizing because they have an unfeeling, insensitive, dull, the New Living Translation, and uh, for parents, I apologize for my bad word, but the New Living Translation says stupid hearts. They, they don't see what God is doing. They don't long for him or for his word. But something has changed in the psalmist. He's been changed by this affliction, this suffering. Now he delights in the law. Now he keeps God's precepts. Uh, there's a well-known paraphrase of the Bible known as the message, and the way the author went with verse 70 to communicate it is he said, I dance to the tune of your revelation. Something has changed in our heart. We rejoice in God. And that's why in 71, the author concludes, this affliction, this suffering has actually been good for me. It was good for me that I was afflicted because it helped him learn God's statutes and pay attention to his decrees. When he's gone past that situation, he's able to look back and say, you know, it was actually good God did that because now I'm walking closer with him. And this has been the experience of God's people throughout the entire time of history. People have known God. They've been able to look back and see, yes, that was hard, but I see how God drew me closer to him. Let me give you a couple examples. One is uh, Katerina Luther. So she was the wife of Martin Luther, the very famous reformer. And she had a conversation with someone about this and said, I had never known what such things meant in the Psalms, talking about a passage like ours. I had never understood the practice of Christian duties had not God brought me under some affliction. She realized this suffering, this hardship, this trial I went through helped me to understand his word and to live for him. I wouldn't have learned it unless he had brought this about. Now note what she's doing though. She's speaking for herself. She's not looking at somebody else saying, yes, you're going through a hard time, but God is doing a great work in you. That, that's not really a word of comfort for someone else. She's saying, I realize that God has been doing something in my life. She's seen this discipline, this suffering as necessary steps on her journey to walk closer with her Lord. It's changed her understanding of what good in her life looks like. One scholar, J. Stephen Ewell, writing about this, he said, good isn't determined by the interest of our body, but by the welfare of our soul. Good isn't determined by our temporal happiness, our happiness here, but by eternal blessedness. No, instead, whatever draws us nearer to God is good, and whatever draws us away from God is evil. 
that is a radically different definition of the word good. I'll be honest, that's not how I use the word good in normal conversation. If you were to talk to me after church and say, Pastor John, did you have a good day yesterday? I'm probably going to answer about whether or not I enjoyed what happened yesterday, the circumstances of my life. I'm not going to be thinking about, did I draw closer to God yesterday when I answer that question? That's probably not the answer you're expecting anyway. But that's the way God defines good. He challenges our perspective again and again in his word. Probably the most famous place he does that is in the book of Romans, in Romans 8, 28, and 29. The Apostle Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we think, wait, but hard things happen in my life. What do you mean they work together for good? Well, he tells us what he means. He says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what good is. It's being conformed to the image of Jesus. It's looking more and more like him. God's good purpose in your life is making you look like Jesus. His ultimate purpose for you is not to give you health here on earth. His ultimate purpose is not to give you wealth and riches here. His ultimate purpose is not to give you physical comfort here on earth. It's not to give you relational fulfillment with another person. You may experience all of those things, but good to God is what makes us holy, makes us like Him, and not always what makes us happy. And if we make that our definition of good, well, then it changes our perspective on our suffering. We realize any suffering or loss we may experience here is nothing compared to the goodness that is to come. Again, J. Stephen Ewell, I, I like how he puts this. He says, affliction takes nothing from us but our sin. Now, in the moment, yes, you feel like, well, I, I lost this relationship. I lost this person I care about. I lost the, the, this job. I'm, I'm losing things. But he's saying, yes, but in the scheme of eternity, the only thing you're really losing is your separation from God. Or to think about it in the words of Scripture, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He calls it this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's one of my that's one of the most poetic, one almost one of my favorite phrases in Scripture, looking at moments of suffering, calling it light, momentary affliction. Every suffering that you have, every illness, no matter how severe, every pain, every heartbreak, every broken relationship, God says for his people that is necessary preparation for the world to come. That's him sanding off the rough edges of your life to make you useful for God and fit to enjoy him and to enjoy his kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that we go through life being a glutton for punishment. Okay, well, then I need more and more suffering in my life. No, no, that's a wrong response to that. But it does mean we learn to value what God is doing in those moments of suffering and difficulty. And the value of those afflictions, in part, is we learn to value God's word, his revelation of himself to us. As he just said, it was good for me I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And the result in his life is that the law of your mouth, God, is better to me 
than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Part of the change that comes through God's discipline is it changes our desires. Left to ourselves, we chase after what I want. I want this. I desire this. I seek this. But this suffering, this affliction changes what we find to be valuable. If we realize this world is not our home, then God's word becomes more precious. It becomes worth more than any amount of silver and gold. This is also something that other passages in Scripture talk about. Psalm 19 says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. If God changes our heart, it changes our desires about what we want. And our changed heart wants to obey God. Pastor Spurgeon said, Wealth is good in some respects, but obedience is better in all respects. And it is a sure sign of a heart which has learned God's statutes when it prizes them what God has said above all earthly possessions. We prize God's word over what we have here on earth that won't last. That is showing that God has changed our heart. Our changed desires have changed our life and that's led to a different response in how we think about suffering and how we live for him. And it's that kind of response that our passage turns to next. Because if God's discipline and his afflictions are good, what, what should we do? What, what is our response to God bringing these trials into our life. If his, if his purpose and discipline is good, then how do we respond to it? And again, two responses come through these eight verses. The first is we ask for more, more growth, more change, which necessarily will mean more of God's discipline and correction in our lives. And that may seem like the opposite of what we want, but it's actually what we need. Again, back in verse 68, he said, teach me, God, you are good, so teach me. We see this again, this request almost for more in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, right after it talks about discipline, the author tells his audience, what you need to do, therefore, is lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, keep going so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Stay pursuing God, even if the path is hard. That's our psalmist response. He starts in verse 73, God, your hands have made and fashioned me, and then his request, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. God, you were the one who made, you formed, fashioned, created me. We see this in scripture. God is the one who has made us. Another psalm, Psalm 139 says, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, your plan, God, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, before they even happened, when as yet there were none of them. Friends, God made you and designed you exactly the way that he intended. And he doesn't make mistakes. And he has a glorious purpose for your life. He made you, and so he determines what is best for us. He knows what is best because he knew you before you even existed. 
One author, Charles Bridges, put it this way. He says, if I'm conscious of being the workmanship of God, if I know that God made me, then I shall feel my relationship to him. And I'll also feel the responsibility of acting according to it. I'll know that I should live as God has called me to live. And we need God's understanding, his sense, his wisdom to live for him. And so that's what your outline says. We ask for more. We ask for it. On the Wednesday evening class, we've been going through James, we talked about wisdom, and one verse we came back to was James 1, verse 5, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what do we do? We ask God. And what does he do? He gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him. God gives wisdom when we ask. Of course, the other side of that, as we've just seen reading this passage, is the way God gives that wisdom is often through hardship, through discipline, through affliction and struggle. But at the same time, our call is to ask and keep asking because the goal we want is to live for God. We want a blameless life, a heart that is wholehearted following our Lord. This is what verse 80 talks about. I know we went from 73 to 80, but he starts and ends with this idea that he wants to grow. Verse 80 says, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. We seek a life that's centered on trusting God, obeying what he has said. We want to be blameless before him. This whole psalm started with that desire. Verse 1 of the whole chapter said, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. That is what we want. That is what we ask God for. We respond to his discipline by seeking to grow more like him. But it's not just something that benefits us. Yes, we look like God. That's great. We can have fellowship with him, enjoy our relationship with him, but it doesn't just benefit us. Others can benefit as well because our discipline that we experience, the afflictions we encounter, they're opportunities for us to seek to encourage others and particularly to seek to encourage God's people. These experiences we have, however rough, are opportunities to encourage God's people. This is what the psalmist wants to do. He wants all of God's people to be encouraged by his experience. As he says in verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. He says if if they fear, if they worship and respect God, then I hope they see me and rejoice, be glad, be filled with joy. Why would they be encouraged? Because even though he's been going through affliction and hardship and suffering, they see he hopes. He hopes in God's word. He waits for God. He trusts in him. This is a regular praise in the Psalms. Again, these are songs. Songs are not typically something you just sing quietly to yourself. No, there's something you sing out loud. It's an expression of your heart. You want others to feel what you feel. Another psalm, Psalm 35, says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. When they see I'm following God, may they be glad. May they say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. They praise God for what is happening. Our psalmist doesn't want them to look at him and say, Wow, that's a really cool guy there. No, he, he wants them to see more of the Lord, to praise God for what is happening. He perseveres through times of trouble in his life in order to give confidence and hope to his brothers and sisters in the faith. 
my brothers and sisters in Christ here, your perseverance through trials, through affliction, through difficulty, it's an encouragement to other believers. Psalm 107 says, the upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. We see this in other places in this passage. In verse 78, we read about how the insolent are put to shame. The wicked are shown to be wrong because they wrong others with falsehood. They wrong without cause. God's people endure. His enemies only find shame. Psalm 25 says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous, who reject God. God brings this about. He brings this honor. And our response to when they criticize us is we turn to God's word. We meditate, concentrate, focus on what he has said. We saw this earlier in verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. God's word is our guide, not public opinion, not criticism, not feels right or seems right, not what we want God to do, but what he has said in his word. And when people see that, verse 79 tells us, our lives encourage them. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. They come to know God's word better through our example of faithfulness. They turn to one another in unity. He wants his friends, his godly friends, to be together again and rejoice in what God is doing in his life. And again, let me point out what's happening to him. He is suffering greatly. We've seen that several times. The word he uses is afflicted. That's a really strong word. But his heart is for others to see what God is doing. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can be very self-centered in our experiences of suffering. Like, this is so hard. This is so difficult. God, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? And that's an understandable human reaction. But look at where this psalmist's mind goes. He's like, yes, I'm suffering greatly, but God is also doing something in my life, and that can be an encouragement to others. This is what we see when we're together with God's people. I know I look out in this room and I see many members of uh, my church family. And as I look at you, I'm reminded of stories, of events, of things that happened to your life, of how you've persevered through hardness, through difficulty, many of you through illness and sickness, maybe through broken relationships or families that are torn apart. And let me just say for me, that encourages me. Maybe in the moment you're like, this was really hard. God, why are you doing this to me? But from sitting outside looking, I take encouragement from how you cling to the Lord in those moments of difficulty. That's what our psalmist does. He says, God, I want people to see what's happening to me and be encouraged to walk closer with you. But that doesn't mean it will be easy to follow God in these moments. It may seem really difficult it may seem impossible to follow God when we're suffering. And you know what? Left to ourselves, it is impossible to follow God in these moments. So what do we need in order to do it? Our author tells us what we need is God's mercy. We need his mercy if we're going to follow him. 
We need his steadfast, unfailing love, his merciful kindness and favor as the only thing that can ultimately comfort us in these moments. And it's his love and mercy is the only thing that can save us, first and foremost. Look at verse 76. He says, God, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. He desires to know God's steadfast love. Let me tell you, the only way that you can know God's steadfast love is by having a relationship with him. I hope you see that in this this passage here. He's not talking to some distant deity. No, he's saying, God, I know you very well. How does he know God? Because he's experienced God's love and grace. And the only way we can know God is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He suffered for God's purpose of knowing us. He died so that we would not have to eternally suffer. And he rose from the dead so that we would know God's mercy, his love, and his favor. If we want to have this kind of faith and trust in God, if we want to see the wrong we experience here, the suffering be used for his purposes, then we need to have a relationship with him. That's not something we work for or earn. No, it happens as we turn away and reject our sin and rebellion. And instead we believe and trust in what he has done for us. Then we experience the comfort of his steadfast love. But it's not just something that we do at the beginning of a Christian life. It's not just a decision we make at the beginning. No, it should have impact throughout our walk with God. It's a well we can always come back to. Jesus always has what God's people need. Look at verse 77. He says to God, let your mercy come to me that I may live. Now, maybe you say, Pastor, I have a different translation. Whether it's mercy, compassion, or grace, the point is God has it, and we need it, and only he can give it. We need it every day. God gives that mercy and grace to us. Remember, he didn't pick us last. No, he loved us first. In our discipline, in our suffering, in our struggle, we can call out to him. Earlier in Psalm 119, he said, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. If you don't know God, call out to him for salvation. You're going through hardship. Make it have a purpose. He can make it have a purpose in your life. Call out to him. If you know him, then call out to him as well for more of his mercy and grace. He is there to help you and sustain you. One scholar, Danny Aiken, said, The same God who disciplines also comforts. The one who bruises also blesses. The one who takes us down also lifts us up. The one who humbles also exalts. Now we're talking about God. We're not talking about a person. This is not an excuse to make somebody else, another human being, suffer. This is the reality that God is perfect and that he is perfectly in control and that his plan is above all of our circumstances. And so we can trust him in every detail, every trial of our lives, because he loves us. He is making us like him. This isn't in the notes, so I apologize people in the back, but I was reflecting on this this week. Um, in, in my family, we try sometimes uh, when we can, when we're, we're all home, to sing a song, a hymn of praise together. 
as a way after, after our meal. I have a very young daughter, so she doesn't understand a whole lot. She more just stares at mommy and daddy as we sing. But the hope is that she develops a heart for God through song. And one song we sang this week was the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. I remember, uh, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. And if you haven't heard it, that's fine. But as we were going through it, I was really struck by the third and fourth verses because I think they're reflecting the same truth we see here. So if you'll indulge me, I, these aren't on the screen, but let me read it to you. It says, When through the deep waters I, God speaking, call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be near thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The rough we go through, he is working in. And then what really struck us was verse 4. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. That doesn't mean that we don't go through pain. That doesn't mean things aren't difficult. It means ultimate hurt. We will not cut off from God. These trials instead bring us closer to him. But again, that's only through Christ. And remember, no one was afflicted or suffered more than Christ. We may go through some really rough times, but we have not carried the weight of all of our sin. We did not have perfect fellowship from God, and then we're separated from him. His affliction led to our salvation, and that makes him the greatest encouragement to us. So if you have a the Bible, you look back to verse 74. Remember, he says that those who fear God shall see me and rejoice. Well, when we see Christ, he encourages us. He leads us to rejoice and be glad. So as we end our time together, let's, let's praise him for his suffering that makes our suffering useful in God's sight.